Steve and Kevin preview the 2015 Vintage Championship on episode 46 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 46 of So Many Insane Plays, our Vintage Championship Preview. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments or questions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com, or leave us feedback on Eternal Central, MTGCast, or TheManadrain.com. All right, Steve, we have a handful of announcements this episode. Where shall we begin? We've got some corrections to make from last episode. Some astute observers on the Mana Drain pointed out that we missed a couple of cards that did make top eight appearances in the time period after our Dragons of Tarkir set review, but which we didn't capture. And part of that is because there were cards we didn't review, and then part of it is simple oversight. So apologies for that. But the cards in question are Dragon Lords Ojitai and Dramaka. Ojitai seeing appearances as a one of in four top eights during the time period in question, cross Bomberman, Stoneblade, and some Mentor decks. And Dramaka seeing some play during that time period and a couple of times since looks like three top eights. Two of them in Oath decks in the main deck, one of them in a Hate Bears deck in the sideboard. So the Dragon Lords made a bigger impact than we could have ever predicted because you and I didn't even bother to talk about them. <laughs> we're <laughs> we'll fairly try- comp- yeah. we'll Say that again? We're fairly comprehensive. Yes, we try to cast a pretty broad deck, but even we are not perfect. And also, there was some data mishap with regard to Narset Transcendent, and I simply can't explain it. But the truth is, is that, by way of correction, Narset Transcendent made four top eights during the period in question, not the zero that we said. So some surprising results that we didn't get to discuss during our report card last time. Apologies for that. We'll try to be more diligent going forward. And, Interesting and an stuff. update, Culligan's Command has also appeared in top eights, but since our last report card. Yeah, exactly. So the set continues to, con- to bear fruit for new technology. So let's talk about other announcements. I think we should mention the old school tournament coming up on Eternal Weekend. Yeah, you're pretty excited. I, I can't begin to tell you how excited I am about that. <laughs> uh, Eternal Central is hosting uh, an unofficial, it's off-site, old school magic, aka 93-94 tournament, where you can only play sets that were printed in 1993 or 1994, with a couple of exceptions. I think I think uh, Eternal Central permits Chronicles, which technically came out in early 95, but is re- are reprints of cards from 93-94. And so far, I think they have at least 36 players signed up for that tournament. Um, it's going to be great fun. It's um, the Friday before Eternal Weekend. And you can find all the details in the link to our podcast uh, at eternalcentral.com. Now, that that tournament starts relatively early in the day, does it not? It's an afternoon event, yeah? That's right. The tournament will start at 1 p.m., and okay. it will just be six rounds of Swiss with a cut to top eight. An entry is either a six-pack of craft beer, a <laughs> bottle of good liquor, or a six-pack of soda or juice, a large bag of chips or, or snacks. <laughs> but look at the look at the restricted band and restricted list because it's not the actual band and restricted list from 1994. There are a lot of cards that were restricted back then that are unrestricted and and so forth. Um, and there are a couple of rule changes, but um, 
the list of players in this is amazing. It's got uh, Sean O'Brien, who is, of course, famous for the uh, the um, O'Brien School with Nethervoid. Randy Bueller will be playing in this event. This is not to be missed. Nice. Now, I oh, was impressed. Chang's playing. Yep, go ahead. Now, I was impressed just by the number of players, but then when you started mentioning some individuals, I'm even more impressed. You said 36 <laughs> pre-registered? Actually, right now, 40 are pre-regged. Wow. Is this going to be the largest old-school event, at least in the United States? Uh, well, since 1994. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, that's pretty awesome. I, I hope that all of our listeners will consider, uh, if not playing, at least watching. It should be a good time. Mm-hmm. But we've got a lot to cover in this show, so we should get to it. Our approach for our preview for the 2015 Vintage Champs is going to take a, a couple of different stages. First stage is going to be data-driven, a very empirical analysis of recent top eight performances, both in paper and on Magic Online, so we can get the latest on what's succeeding in the format. Then we're going to transition into some of our predictions, that is, what the impacts of recent events will have, as well as some longer-term trends and some of the things that MTGO brings to the table. And we're also going to talk for a little bit about de decks and strategies. Mm -hmm. So we'll be, we'll be looking at top eight data, but we're also just going to try to do an assessment of what we think will show up, in, in, in at least in what ratios are relative quantities. So let's dig into the paper side of recent events. This conversation is driven by results from tcdex.net, which has top eight, well, top four through 16 in some cases, events and there have been a dozen events since the nyse open that are on this website's results now we've covered the nyse in great detail some of those trends are continued but that top eight is only one event and so it's only so instructive right so just to put your point in a context or make it a little bit more clear since the nyse open which had 150 players there have only been there's only been in paper tournaments that have been reported, two tournaments with more than 35 players, and there are four tournaments with 30 or more players in that period, mm -hmm. which is actually incredible. That have been reported. <laughs> yeah, that have been reported. Now, we know there are noteworthy omissions here from Gen Con. None of the three big tournaments that they ran, which were Eternal Weekend qualifiers at Gen Con, are in these results. But we do know two of the winners because they're well, friends and teammates of ours. It, well, it's worth pausing on the point that you just made, though, which is that at Gen Con, they <laughs> held qualifiers for the Vintage Championship, which was, of course, were not announced. I didn't know that. Did you, Kevin? No, I didn't. Um, I mean, I think it's a good thing that they did, but I think those things could have been announced in advance you know, at least more broadly advertised. And at a minimum, I think that they should have collected deck lists for those. Um, so, so not only is there a paucity of data, but there's also inadequate reporting of what events there are. And that I think that'll I'll come back to that when we discuss Magic Online. It, it is truly a shame. We're grateful for the data that we have. This tcdex.net site is very useful and has some good information but the fact that such important tournaments at an event like Gen Con that are specifically qualifiers for Eternal Weekend yeah. that don't make themselves available, don't even collect deck lists and are poorly publicized to begin with, that's a big shame. And, you know, for an event like the Vintage Championship, you would think that one way of advertising it or promoting it would be at least publish the winners of those 
qualifying events, those declas. Um, you know, it's kind of, there's no other way to put it, but it's a bit sad that we're in the era of big data. And basically since June 27th to late August, we have very little data from which to draw assessments about where the metagame's going, where we, where we, how it's evolving, and what we can project into this, this upcoming event. I mean, this is compared to the kinds of analysis I've been able to do in the last, I don't know, even 10 years. This is about as bad as it gets. Mm-hmm. This is as bad as I can remember in terms of having access to quality data before Vintage Champs, which puts which puts competitors in a really tough place. <laughs> and it exacerbates regional metagames as well. So people who play consistently in just their area with just their local competitors can get skewed results, unfortunately. Yeah, unless you're in the Northeast corridor of the United States, in which case that's where Vintage Champs is going to be held. So you'll be in an advantage. <laughs> <laughs> well, you will certainly probably have the most representative sample if you play in local events up in the Philadelphia, New York area. But let's talk about what we do have. So from a dozen events, we have deck lists. As I said before, some of them only top four because they're smaller events. Some of them top 16. Aggregating all of those decks, not so they weren't talking not just top eight decks, there were about 90 decks. 20% of those are mud. 10% oath, 9% what we're calling keeper on the site, but which means three to four color control, usually Grixis. 8% are mentor decks, gush mentor decks. 8% dredge. 7% what they call gush aggro, which you should read as delver or similar decks. 5% fish and below 5% is not really worth commenting. Tezzeret, Storm Combo, Blue Moon, some other control variants. The big takeaway here being that Mud and Oath are competing for the top two slots, with control decks in Keeper and Gush Mentor coming in shortly after that. Well, I think I think before we draw takeaways, we should just add a big caveat that it really depends on how you slice and, and dice the data. Mm-hmm. Because if you add Gush Mentor and Gush Aggro, which unless you're talking about those Gush decks that have like the Mentor decks that have like two mentors, <laughs> you know, a lot of these have like four mentors and whatever. Yeah. It's totally reasonable to add those together, and then you get to fifteen percent, which is right between Oath and Mud. I, I think the clear take I don't I think the clear takeaway is that Mud is the number one deck. Workshop decks are the number one most popular strategy by mm-hmm. far. I think yeah. that's the most important thing. I don't want to overstate Oath because I don't think that's represented in Magic Online. And I think Oath is really in a deep decline. So the data that you have is a little bit a little bit misrepresentative there. I did want to well, also let, just... Let's point out that the, the statistics I just read are simply in aggregate. They don't speak to performance. Right. And and it's and again, it's that's only July and August, basically. Yeah. Shifting gears from aggregate analysis of decks that are played to their performance, though, we should look at first place finishes, I think. Now, if you scale back to tournaments with at least 16 players, because we have a few 8 to 12s in our data set, which I don't want to give too much weight to. Right. And if you look specifically at first place finishes, that leaves us with eight events in this data set. Mud had one first place finish. Gush Mentor had two. Dredge had one. We got Blue Moon, which is the blue uh, Blood Moon control deck, had one. And one for Gush Storm. That means that as a conversion rate, (laughs) because of low initial player performance, Gush Storm was actually the best at converting player representation into tournament wins at 50% in this data set, (laughs) which is pretty funny. I mean, it speaks to how small the data set is, I think, to a degree. Right. And but other decks are in the thirty to forty percent range. I mean, with such a small data set, the difference between one and two is kind of hard to to measure. But 
I do want to draw attention to the fact that MUD, which is far and away the, the most highly played, only won one tournament in this data set. But I should also right. emphasize the asterisk that is we don't have Gen Con's results in here, and we know that MUD won at least two of those. And I should add an asterisk to that, which is that um, in that um, the two MUD victories were by Brian DeMars and Paul Mastriano mm-hmm. with Hanger Mac Walker MUD. Mm-hmm. And um, in at least one of those cases, in Paul's case, his opponent scooped to him in the last round so he Paul could have the buys. So That's Oath a good te- point. Te- Oath technically actually won that tournament. Yeah. So... So Mud really has two to three wins in this data set, but it still has a very poor conversion rate in terms of total attendance. In terms of the decks that I was able to aggregate is actually very far down on the list in terms of converting a a player into a victory. But it has an enormous presence in top eight that far far surpasses anything else. That's right. The rest of the decks, the, the top performers in terms of converting into wins were the Mentor deck and beyond that, the Blue Moon deck and Dredge. But again, data sets is too um, too small to really stack rank those too much, put too much emphasis on that. It's worth pointing out that the major players in the environment that are at the top of the st- uh, most played lists, Mud, Gush decks, Oath, and Keeper or other control decks, and Dredge, will all be represented throughout the metagame and likely in the top eight in similar percentages to these when it comes time to sit down at, uh, at Vintage Champs. We'll get to our predictions full on in a little bit, but these percentages are very similar to the NYSE Open results, just not the exact top eight in the NYSE. But we covered in our prior uh, two episodes ago the percentage of the metagame, and these percentages in this small data set are still relatively representative. You need to be prepared for these top decks. In terms of weighting victories by the size of the event, Steve, which you mentioned earlier, it doesn't it doesn't do well to weight too much a victory in an eight to twelve person event, granted. So the largest single event in this data set was the MKM series number two in Toulouse, which was won by Mud. <laughs> so right. while it might not be converting very well, it did win the largest tournament in this data set. And you know what won the second largest tournament? The, oh, top, deck, the top deck games event in, in Westmont, New Jersey, yeah, was won by Dredge. So despite the fact that there are a lot of competitors that are vying for top spots and Mud doesn't win absolutely everything, it's still Mud and ever-present Dredge who are taking home large events. Yeah, so I, the, the three largest events in recent in recent history in Paper Magic, going back to NYSE, and then the two largest ones from this are Dredge Mud Dredge. And if you consider the Gen Con events as 30-plus events, you know, the next tier, at least two out of the three of those were won by Mud. <laughs> so these, these, these major staples of the format that everyone's gunning for are still managing to win events. And in Dredge's case, it's not with great numbers either. 8% representation in this sample size. So... One of the things that I've observed in Vintage before is that it, the tournament size really does make a difference. And we have data here. It's not a lot of data, but the, the tournament size that we're looking at are really small. And what's so striking is that you've got these Gush Mentor decks or maybe Mentor decks performing so well in these small events, but completely absent from these larger events. Yeah. So that's such a striking fact that it's hard to reconcile. And we're going to get into the MTGO data, which I've um, compiled, but Mentor is entirely, virtually absent as well from the MTGO 4 and 0 dailies. 
in the dailies. So, you know, I'm not sure what, what's going on there, why that's an inconsistency. But the other thing is that sort of in my experience in the format, there tend to be these temple events that define a calendar. Mm. And it is more often than not the case, and I may be overstating this a bit, that you get the same deck winning the marquee events every year. So you get these these years where the same deck will win like the Bazaar of Moxon and the Vintage Championship or the Bazaar of Moxon, the Doomsday and the NYSE Open, you know, um, that that tends to be the case if there aren't major shifts in the metagame. Um, and I guess what I'm saying is I would not at all be surprised if this is the year that Dredge wins since Dredge won the major tentpole event. And I think there's a lot to suggest that Dredge has a big wind wind at its sails this mm-hmm. year. And we'll, we'll get into the little into that in a bit more detail when uh, we look at some of the deck lists. But um, I just wanted to point out that there tends to be some really powerful discrepancies between the largest data samples that we have here, the largest samples we have, and sort of what's going on in our in our sample more more uh, generally. And then also the fact that if you're really focusing on the largest events, mud and dredge seem like they're the clear front runners. Um, I would agree. I would agree with your conclusion. Do you want to switch gears and start talking about the online metagame then? Yeah. So Vintage was brought into Magic Online in June of roughly June of last year, and it's important to bear in mind just how powerfully Magic Online influenced the Vintage Championship of last year. Mm. Last year's Vintage Championship was the biggest ever, and people who played, who sort of cut their teeth on Vintage on Magic Online, like Ryan, I forget his name, Ryan Eberhardt, did very well, including a top four. Uh, performance and if you projected you know magic online to the vintage metagame in the month before you would have come very close to nailing it with with the rise of delver which was more evidenced in magic online than anywhere else so what what i think is important to bear in mind is that um there is a powerful relationship between magic online and vintage championship and i think that it bears close inspection what's happened on magic online and so um unfortunately the the magic online data we have is just dailies and dailies are all-round tournaments i think up until very you know right around now i'm not sure when they convert over the three rounds but the data that i wanted to close it uh, home in on and really pay close attention to was the, the data of the four o's mm-hmm. and so i did the same thing as you i looked at everything since the nyse open and i just want to add a note about the data if, when you go to the magic online webpage that has deck lists it allows you to do a search by format. And if you type in vintage or put in vintage and do a search for vintage, only a portion of the vintage daily events will actually pop up. Hmm. I'm not sure why, but for example, in August, there have been six dailies so far that have fired, at least that have shown up on as deck lists. If you do a search for vintage, they show up. But if you do a filter search by format vintage, then they don't all show up. So I just want to flag that. There are six dailies from August, um, but not all of them show up if you do a filter search for vintage. So much like we have a problem with um, underreporting of data, there's also a disorganization <laughs> from Wizards themselves about about this data. Their strategy is not to present all tournaments in the first place, right? That's right. It's compounded by the fact that, as we know, if two dailies fire in a single day, they only report the daily that had the larger number of people. Um, so just to make a point of what I was saying, if you go to the Magic Online webpage, webpage that has deck lists and you do a filter search by vintage, only one daily from August shows up, August 10th. But if you type in vintage in the search, all six show up so uh yeah i'll let i'll let you be the judge of that Um, when it rains it pours huh 
<laughs> so let me let me tell you what I, I found. Um, also, just worth noting that the number of 4-0s will vary depending on the number of people who played in the tournament. So in a, only a small number of dailies do you actually have two players who end up being 4-0. Only one in August. I think only one, maybe two in July. So just bear that in mind when I tell you the, the figures. Mm. So there were seven decks in August that 4-0'd, and there were 24 decks in July that 4-0'd. And the breakdown is as follows. Um, out, out of the total number of decks that 4-0'd in July and August, which totals 31, 51% of them were, were workshop decks. Wow. <laughs> and the breakdown was nine Koldotha Mud, five Aggro Mud, which by that I mean like the decks that had either Porcelain Legionnaire or Arcbound Ravager. Mm-hmm. One Terra Nova, one Terra Nova, and one deck that had I, I think is best defined as stacks, and it had some, it had three smokestacks, and it had a bunch of big creatures like Worm Coil Engines and things like that. But in aggregate, that's four different workshop decks, workshop archetypes, and um, for a total of uh, sixteen workshop decks out of a total of thirty-one and four zero, and a non-trivial number of that of those, I would guess probably at least a third were by some character named Montolio. <laughs> Uh, and uh, Montolio, though, what's interesting, if you look at the data, in the first half of July, he played almost exclusively aggro mud. Hmm. So I think three of the four aggro mud decks that top that 4 0 in July were Montolio and aggro mud, meaning playing decks with like Arcbound Ravager or Porcelain Engineer. But in the second half of the month, and ever since, he's been strictly on Cold Dotha. So it's worth mentioning and, and emphasizing that although 16 of the 31 decks, over 51, 50% were mud, uh, more than half of those, nine out of the 16, were Cold Dotha variants. So Forge Master is by far the best performing of the mud variants. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it has a huge lead on aggro mud. Um, now, I don't know what that means for Brian and Paul playing Hangerback Walker, which we talked a lot about <laughs> at, um, in the last podcast. Um, and I also just want to bear, emphasize that, um, you know, again, the data is very small, but there were 24, 24 again, 24 4 decks from July. And out of that, eight were Koldotha mud alone. But out of the seven decks that um, have 4 0 in August so far, only three of those have been mud. So, you know, although it's a smaller sample size, less than 50% of the decks, still three out of seven mm-hmm. are, are workshops. Um, it's still a huge, a huge, you know, percentage. So what makes up the next tier then? There's really nothing that's close. The, the, you know, of course, because 16 is, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. The next tier, you've got three Grixis Pyromancer decks. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the deck that, um, basically the version that Randy Bueller won the season three of the VSL with. Sure. Which means Pyromancer decks with these Cabal Therapies. Um, there are three of those. There is two, I'm going to go with the, the non-ones first, mm-hmm. right? Uh, there were two dredge decks. There were three dredge decks overall, so that's the, that's tied for the next thing. But there were two of those dredge decks were what I'll call pitch dredge with transformative sideboard. Okay. Meaning, meaning they had four force of will, four mental missteps, four mind break traps, and they had um, the dark depths sideboard and or uh, divining witch. I think they were all actually both dark depths sideboard. We'll we'll talk about that deck in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, those were the only decks. Those were the only strategies that had three copies. The rest was as follows: one Grixis control, meaning like a time vault dog will tinker deck like uh, Mark Lenigris from a couple years back. One, what I'll just call blue-red the solution. I think that's what it's called, the Blood Moon deck. The answer had, is what they're calling it in Europe. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, that's right, the answer. 
and it has like blood moon and chalices and um a lot of blue control and i think maybe like consecrated sphinx or something yeah we'll talk about that deck later only one delver deck one in in that entire sample of 31 decks that was four out only one delver mm -hmm. which is how the mighty have fallen right right but they've shifted to that grixis pyromancer list that's right but there's no delvers in there yeah two bug decks meaning you know like the abrupt decay death right shaman mm -hmm. at least one of them had uh um Dark Confidants. Um, one Thoughtcast Mentor is what I'm calling it, which is a mentor deck that has a big mana base, mm. including Mox Opals and Thoughtcast. Cool. Land still. And then, Kevin, out of all 31, the last one of 1 0. Wow. Really interesting. So the the paper and digital metagames are pretty dramatically different. It's astonishing. I, I have some opinions on why workshops do so well online, but I don't know. The, sa the sample size is, is so small that it's hard to draw too many conclusions, but man, 50% or more workshops. That's not an anomaly. <laughs> that's dominance, by the way. That's dominance. And it's interesting, too. You would think. <laughs> I, I don't know what the message is here for R&D. We can maybe save that for another episode. But but you've got to look at 50% from a, from one of the pillars of the format as, well, that's that's worth examining more closely from R&D's perspective. <laughs> but hopefully they know that, that digital magic and paper vintage are not the same thing just quite yet, even though all the same cards are legal. I think it's worth emphasizing that we have a bandwagon effect for workshops now that we've never seen. Mm -hmm. In my entire life, I have never seen Rich Shea, Brian DeMars, and Paul Mastriano playing workshop. Yeah, you're right. And they all have in the last month and a half. The, we're talking die-hard, died-in-the-wool, lifelong force of will players there, all three of them. <laughs> yeah. It's, I don't know what that means. I don't know if that will be sustained through the Vintage Championship. But, I mean, Brian DeMars wrote a, an article on VintageMagic.com mm -hmm. about his hangerback mud deck. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it turns out I think that you will end up being right um, hangerback walker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <sighs> but, we'll see how much, how right I am. <laughs> right. So, so what stands out to you here, Kevin? What stands out to me, once you get past the obvious, Coldotha, Forge Master, Mud being the most dominant deck, what stands out to me is how almost none of the other... You've got the top three to four from the paper metagame, but uh -huh. there's just there's just not as much of the other fringe things. There's not as much of land still. There's not as much of Oath, obviously, clearly. There's not as much of the the Blue Moon decks, the, the, the answer... Well, and there's not as much mentor only, either. These are, these are only the 4-0 decks. I know, but so but yeah. I mean, so we're comparing winning tournaments to the whole metagame of the paper world. So it's a little bit apples to oranges. We know that going in. But I just, uh, when, when one archetype or one pillar of the format sucks up half the oxygen, you something has to give. And so there's just not very much room. If you condense, to your point earlier about condensing Mentor and Delver decks, if you condense Grixis Pyromancer, Blue Red Delver, and Gush Mentor in your numbers here, those two, those three together become what six? <laughs> if you take that yeah. plus plus the shops plus a couple of dredge, there it looks like there's room for nothing else in the format. Basically, yeah. <laughs> everything else is just rogue. <laughs> I, I just. <laughs> It's funny. I don't know. I don't know what to make of it. I also wonder what this analysis would be like if you normalized out Montolio. 
specifically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because I, I will mention that in, in one of the events, Mon recent events, Montolio went three and one with a Kolbotha deck that had two hangerback walkers. Oh, okay. So it's showing up um, there. Yeah, it's showing up. I, I, I think you make a really good point. I, I mean, it's there, there is something going on here. Now, I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention that one of the biggest differences between paper and online is the unviability of Bomberman mm -hmm. in in um, Magic Online, which is, I think, didn't it top eight the NYSE Open? Yes, it did. Yeah, so that's a big difference. And the, there's also Oath of Bomberman, mm -hmm. which is, of course, not viable for the same reason on Magic Online. Yeah, so there, um, there are two Bomberman-esque variants that have do put up small numbers that just don't but, exist online. And I want to say that I think that that difference helps explain the performance of Oath, because a non-trivial number of the Oath decks in your sample, Kevin, were oh those those Brian Kelly Oath decks. It's true. Yep. And so, so I think I think for the Vintage Championship, I think the Brian Kelly decks will be more washed out. Not saying they won't be present, but I don't. I think they'll, it'll probably more closely resemble resemble Magic Online. Mm -hmm. So Oath has gone from being, you know, I think winning the Vintage Championship very marginal position in that game. Yeah. And people, um, a lot of people think of Oath as a workshop killer. A lot of people think of this is what you you pivot to when workshops are really good. But right. the, the results simply don't bear that out. Workshops just still dominate, relatively speaking, <laughs> Oath in the big picture. Now, Oath can win an event here or there, and it, it can win a, a match here or there, but it's just not putting up numbers that would justify its notion as an answer to the workshop problem. Right, and I think that there are these reinforcing feedback loops in the format. Um, you know, so for example, the, the fact that these Delver decks have been completely driven out of the format um, allow Bug to come back. And so we've got Bug decks in both your sample and my sample mm -hmm. in non-trivial, you know, relatively speaking, numbers. Mm -hmm. uh, remember Bug top eight at the NYSE Open? Yep. And and has two appearances in the 31 decks here, both one in August and one in July, the 4-0. So, you know, that also probably doesn't help out because it's got quadruple yeah, abrupt decay. That's right. Bug is a natural predator for Oath. I, I, uh, go ahead. I really want to go back to what you said about the significance of Magic Online's metagame and its representation at Eternal Weekend last year in 2014. The big story of that year being Delver, of course. What would the Delve spell? Driven by Delve. Yeah. yeah. But I... And we both know, and I think all of our listeners understand, that there's no way that the Eternal Weekend metagame is going to look like these, the, this distribution of 4-0 decks from Magic Online. There's no way that the room is going to be 50% workshops. There are a lot well, of reasons these, for these, that. Yeah, these are 4 no decks. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I mean, we, we don't know what the actual the, the number of workshop decks were entered in these events were, right. but you have to think it's probably, probably under 20% or around 20% at most. Well, we don't know, though. I mean... Yeah, we don't, we don't know. know. We don't know. But so we, we want to be clear. We're not saying that the Vintage Champs is going to be 50% workshops. But I, so I want to zero in on what your real observation here is then. Do you simply think that this year is going to be two to four workshop decks in the top eight because it's doing so well and will have slightly higher representation this year than last, perhaps? I Now, there were two workshop I, decks last year in the top eight. It's worth noting. There were two. There were two workshop decks in the top eight, but I think it's also worth remembering that, that workshops. So it depends on how you understand what happened. Mm -hmm. So what's your narrative of vintage the vintage metagame? One way of looking at it is that Delver decks 
were given a gigantic boost by Treasure Cruise. Mm -hmm. The restriction of Treasure Cruise killed Delverdex. That's one narrative. I think that's an overly simplistic narrative, but that's certainly part of the story. They maybe not killed, but at least no. But well, I think one one Delverdex out of 31 is is the equivalent of of murder. Okay, so uh, what you and I are observing, I think, is the same thing. That's the effect now, but but it wasn't only that factor that got us to this point. Yeah, but so no, I think you're. I mean, I think that's an oversimplification. But let's just assume that's the the basic causal story. Okay. All right. If 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 we assume that that's what happened, that it was Treasure Cruise that gave Delver the boost, and now Treasure Cruise is gone, that would explain why it's back to nothing. (laughs) But that would. But if you also adopt that narrative, it also gives you a view as to you remember what decks won the NYSE last year and then won that I think the Bizarre Moxon last year as well Kevin you remember no I don't it was mud La- oh that's right last year's was mud I didn't remember the uh, the yes. Bizarre Moxon was mud also yeah it was it was it was mud mm-hmm. which means that looking from in, let's say the last 18 months you might say that mud has been the best deck with the exception of the 3 months in which Treasure Cruise is leaked <laughs> Which, Which, from that perspective, would suggest that Mud is the odds-on favorite for the to win this tournament. So, I think that's reasonable that there's something like that's an right. 18 to 24 month arc or ascension going on here that was interrupted by a mistake. Yeah, <laughs> but the so overall trend is still by a there. Restriction. Yeah, yeah, corrected by a restriction, and then you're back to where you were. Yeah. So that's one possibility. Mm-hmm. But like I said, I think that story is too pat. I think it's too simplistic. Mm-hmm. I don't think that Delver's rise was entirely explained by. Um, uh, explained by Treasure Cruise. I think Delver was already doing really well when Treasure Cruise came in. There's a reason you uh, read a whole book about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I <laughs> I did happen to do really well with Delver before Treasure Cruise in the Super League, and so did others. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I also think that um, you know, it won a lot of tournaments. It was doing really well. I top eighted the NYSE. Uh, I think that one of the most interesting stories, though, is how Mentor has disrupted Delver's dynamic. Mm-hmm. Mentor came in with a big splash and has, I mean, at least in terms of the Magic Online results, it's been completely absent. You have one, you have two, sorry, you have two Mentor decks in these entire out of 31 decks. Two. But that wasn't the case three months ago. So what do you think changed in that short period? I don't, I don't have the, 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 um, the 4-0 decks from three months ago. Yeah. But what uh, I'm not sure that that wasn't the case. I can't say that because I don't have the data in front of me. Um, I think that Mentor came in with a huge splash, but I'm not sure that its performance ever really matched its expectations in a lot of ways. Certainly not mine, right? I mean, I took I played Mentor in two cycles of the Vintage Super League, and I think I went, like, what, one in five with it or something? Yeah, and you're not alone right, either. Yeah, right when it came out, it performed horribly on the Vintage Super League. Um, but I think what's interesting is Mentor has performed really well in small local events. I won multiple local events at Eudaimonia mm-hmm. uh, with it, and so have you in your local and metagame. But it again, how many Mentor decks were in the NYSE Top 8? Zero. And what percentage of the metagame was it? Well, there, the, One of the Landstill decks had two Mentors in it, just okay. by way of caveat. Okay, but that's not a Mentor a, deck. Yeah. No, it's not a Mentor yeah. deck, but it had Mentors. And then how many how many Mentor decks were in the room? Look at the metagame breakdown. There's a huge number. Yeah, there were relatively yeah, many, a lot. <laughs> Outside of the workshops, it was one of the higher individual archetypes. Right. I think part of what's happened is that Mentor is probably just a very weak match, uh, very weak to workshops. Mm-hmm. It's part of it. Um, and in workshops, gigantic surge on Magic Online had just completely pushed Mentor out of the room. Yeah. Uh, that's part of the story. I don't think that's the entire story. <laughs> um, I, I'll just say a couple other things. I think 
think some of the metagame developments have been punishing both Mentor and Delver decks simultaneously. So this the UR solution deck is really bad for those decks. Mm-hmm. It, it makes Gush hard to use. And Chalice is really bad for those decks. Um, I also think the Landstill deck is pretty brutal for Mentor decks. Um, it seems like the only deck of that ilk, if you will, that survived the Onslaught is the is the Cabal Therapy Grixis version. Which so, is strange. <laughs> which is strange. <laughs> I don't know. I can't tell you why it survived it, but it has. Well, I think there's one factor there, and I think the VSL. I think VSL has a very yeah. powerful influence on the online metagame. And yeah. I think that when you get players who are energized by vintage from the VSL and they happen to be primarily or only online players, then the decks that do well in the VSL are going to be overrepresented to a degree. Now, I wouldn't say that, what is it, three appearances in the last two months is, is over-representation per se, but relative to other Delver and Mentor lists, yeah, it definitely is. Yeah, it's 10%. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, the, the point is, Mentor was, what, one, and other Delver decks were one, and this Grixis list is three. I think that's the kind of over-representation yeah. we're talking about. Exactly. Um, I, I also want to point, I just want to emphasize this. Um, we've already made the point, but I, I think it's very clear that Mud is going to be present, and it's going to do very well. Yeah. But... But I don't want that to overshadow the Dredge story and what's happened with Dredge. <laughs> Dredge has gone from being virtually absent in the vintage metagame last year. I mean, I think last year was one of the first years, maybe the last two years, it did not top eight in vintage champs. Yeah. It was always a perennial contender. Yeah. It was always like one or two Dredge decks in every vintage champs top eight. Last year, nothing. And it, winning the NYSE was just the beginning of the trend. I think Dredge is on a massive upsurge. And I don't think we've seen it in the data. What I'm seeing, I'm seeing like the wave like a mile out. Mm-hmm. It's coming, Kevin. Yeah. It's coming. The, the dredge decks I'm seeing online here, these are innovative, powerful strategies that are resilient. And I think, what is the guy's name? Solomon Brophy? Sol- Solomon, Solomon Brophy? Yeah. Solomon Brophy, who, who won the NYSE. His was just, I think his is the, is the you know, the the opposite of the tip of the spear. <laughs> you know, his is the beginning of the, beginning of the, of the, of the crest. Um, I really want to focus in on this deck that has appeared, this pitch dredge deck that has appeared both winning the top deck games tournament that is in your sample mm-hmm. and the, the two, the, 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 the two that are in my sample. I want to talk about them for a minute. Um, so the ones in my sample were by Tom, one of them is by Thomas Dixon. And like I said, he has 12 pitch, quote, pitch blue counter magic. And he's gotten his sideboard four Dark Depths, four Thespian Stage, four Urborg Tomb of Yogmoth, two Vampire Hexmage, and one Ripstone Portal. And of course, it has main deck, a Library of Alexandria, and four Petrified Fields. Mm-hmm. So if you bring in, oh, and it has Chancellor of the Annex as well. So if you bring in Dredge Hate against this, you're going to be dead. Yeah. This deck has so much counter magic, 12 counters on top of its discard, mm-hmm. and it's going to be just, the only thing your Dredge Hate can do is stop it from petrifying field half the combo. <laughs> but that's not going to stop it from doing what it needs to do, because this deck, you know, Grafter's Kid won't stop that. Um, Containment Priest won't stop that, right? No, absolutely it will not. Right. No, just having and, the lands-based Dark Depths combo, sidesteps, all of the graveyard interaction, you can still, as you said, get right. some graveyard value thanks to Petrified Field, but you don't need it. You can just use Bizarre as a draw engine to find your two halves of this uncounterable combo. And this strategy only needs to win, usually, one post-board game. Yeah. It's worth noting, too, which that... Makes- 
Dredge can play a different game on the play versus the draw, too. There's a lot of celerity when Dredge is on the play. It puts pressure on even two-mana solutions like Containment Priest. You can sometimes just out-dredge a Containment Priest if your opponent didn't draw a Mox. And so you can play the basic Dredge strategy on the play, but on, it maybe in game three, if they manage to win game two somehow, <laughs> but maybe in game three, that's your primary strategy. Or if they, they play a Tormod's Crypt, they play a Rest in Peace, well, then you can just switch gears immediately. Yeah. It, it's really hard to combat that strategy because it it's also can't be countered. Yeah. Not only does it have all the counter magic in the world to protect it, but the only way to stop assembling that co- them from assembling that combo is, without killing them first is strip mine mm-hmm. or a plow, mm-hmm. I suppose, a source of plowshares. Um, I just I think it's really important, and I also mentioned that in the previous iteration that um, Thomas Dixon foroed, and there are no I think there are more than a couple three and ones with this deck. Or no, he had three Vengeful Pharaoh mm. in his deck, which for those of you who don't know is black, black, black two creature zombie death touch. Whenever a combat damage is dealt to you or a planeswalker you control, if Vengeful, if Vengeful Pharaoh is in your graveyard, destroy target attacking creature, then put Vengeful Pharaoh on top of your library five four. So you know what that you know what that gets rid of, right? Mentor. Containment Priest. Oh, Containment Priest. Yeah, for sure. What it means is if your opponent brings in Containment Priest, they can't attack you, thereby giving you all the time in the world to find your answer, find your Rending Volley, find your alternate win condition, whatever. One of the the great reasons to play Containment Priest over something like, say, Rest in Peace, is it's also a clock. Right. Get it down fast enough, keep any creatures off the board, then you've got, albeit a slow one, but you've got a clock. It's also also good against those. Granted. But... With Vengeful, Vengeful Pharaoh in their, in their graveyard, all of a sudden you're not attacking them in the mall anymore. All of a sudden you've just turned your your containment priest back into a graft digger's cage, and you've got to find another way to win the game. And oh, by the way, it's kind of hard to win the game with Vengeful Pharaoh in their discard pile. What what all this suggests <laughs> is that Dredge has more weapons than ever before. Yeah. And, and uh, why don't since you covered it, why don't you talk about the the deck list that won the top deck games tournament? Which by the way is Nick Koss tournament who is hosting eternal week yeah go ahead well so the list played by lance Ballister has a lot of the factors that we just discussed but there's one other thing now it this list at the time did not have the mind break traps in it so it, it has only eight counter spells force of will and mist <laughs> in addition to the dark depths thespian stage combo in the sideboard though lance also has cavern of souls and divining witch now this has been written about a bit on the drain and in some articles, but this is a two-pronged attack then post sideboard. You have the uncounterable dark depths thespian stage combo. Oh, I should point out this particular list has main deck lab maniac, so that's key for understanding the cavern of souls divining witch in the sideboard. So this deck, in addition to having all the normal tools that dredge has, has available to it a laboratory maniac vis-a-vis gristle brand kill in the main deck. So you spread yeah. yourself low, and then you cast two Dread Returns. It has three in there. Right. You bring back a Lab Man and a Gristle Brand, and you just deck yourself and win right on the spot. So you can win without creature damage. Then, post-sideboard, if you feel like it, and the matchup calls for it, you can bring in three Cavern of Souls and Divining Witch, at which point you don't even need Gristle Brand. You can just, assuming there's a Cage or a, a Containment Priest in play, you can just cast Divining Witch, and cast Laboratory Maniac, both of yes. which happen to be what? Human 
<laughs> and that's what you would name with uncounterable. Yeah, and un- therefore yep. uncounterable. So the deck, in addition to the, the Dark Depths plan, the deck brings in another uncounterable uh, strategy and combo. This strategy is a menace. Yeah, it really this is. Strategy, this strategy really, I mean, if you're trying to figure out what to play and you're listening to this podcast, I think Dredge deserves a lot of serious credit and consideration. And I think Dredge has always reinforced events like this because it's a deck that you can play in a real metagame with just four bazaars. You know, in a, without power. Um, yeah, I mean this this deck. I would not be surprised, like I said, to see Dredge win this tournament. I think to yeah. your point about the ascendancy of Dredge. Also, it's worth noting. I think the most exciting technology of the last few months is taking place in Dredge. Yes. Between the, the things we've mentioned and the rending volley that Sullivan Brophy had, and some of the other things we've seen, I've seen sudden shocks in the sideboard. I've seen lots of different creative solutions. This notion of mind break trap and dredge is just a nightmare. I mean, give me a break. <laughs> <laughs> As if it weren't bad enough. They could just go land go and decimate your first, you know, attempt to dissuade them and oh man, it's unbelievable. So uh, I I tend to agree with you. I would not be surprised if there weren't even if there weren't Maybe as as many as two dredge in the top eight, but it only takes one to go the distance. I mean, it only takes one to go the distance. And there's it's, re- it's, it's strategically a nightmare. Like you can't sideboard out swords to plowshares. Yeah, which is interesting. <laughs> you used to be able to. You know, speaking of trends, I I realized something recently, and it goes back to a conversation you and I had after the NYSE off the air. You were talking about, and you mentioned it earlier in the show already, about the pressure that monastery mentor decks put on the Delver decks. Because the Monastery Mentor decks were structurally almost exactly the same. The Gush and the Treasure Cruise for a while, the one Treasure Cruise, then the Dig Through Time, the Preordains. It's got all the same stuff, but it upgrades the Bolts into Plows, which I think is an upgrade. And then it upgrades Pyromancer and the Mentor, and so it just got to go bigger. The only way Delver could really fight that was to just be faster, which is not reliably, you know, always good enough. So anyway, there was pressure put on Delver because of Mentor. I think there's another pressure going on in Vintage, and Containment Priest really exemplifies it, but the fact that Containment Priest isn't good enough also exemplifies it. And I think <laughs> I think Vintage is starting to have a problem that many players, professional players, have observed about Modern, and that is the linear strategies have become more and more narrow and more linear. And one of the things that has happened is anti-artifact sideboard cards are now only for the workshop matchup which wasn't the case two or more years ago it used to be that you would run your grixis control deck your dark confidant grixis control deck back in the day you would run hercules recall you would run maybe ancient grudge if you were that many colors and you would run those cards with the expectation that yeah they're really good against workshops but they're also good against this you run Hercules Recall because of Blightsteel Colossus, or you run Ancient Grudge because of Time Vault or Key Vault, you know? Those two things have almost disappeared from the metagame. It's almost, in, <laughs> almost, almost, almost all, I know, almost, this is within reason here, but almost the only artifacts that matter are played in workshops. Delver doesn't play an artifact that matters. Mentor might have a top. Dredge absolutely doesn't. I mean, Bomberman has artifacts. Yeah, it's kind of defined by them, but you wouldn't bring an artifact removal against that deck. Yeah, I think that's slightly overstated because there are still Chalice and Null Rod decks in the format. Well, but, there are very few Null Rod decks in the format. Where are those in your numbers? 
Well, there there are no Merfolk decks that that four owed, but I'm sorry, but there was Bug. Let me see if the Bug deck. Yeah, no, actually, I, I can't. not all the Bug decks are Nullrod decks anymore, and some of the other would be Nullrod decks are now Stony Silence decks. I would wager yes. that the number of, I mean, total population this, for Vintage Champs, I mean, the number of Nullrod decks is going to be less than five percent. The, the answer often runs chal- has Chalice. Yeah, but that's the only deck that does other than the workshops. Yeah. <laughs> So I mean, I right. but that's my point, though, right? How many answer decks are there? It's a single-digit yeah. representation in the meta game. The point is, is that you can't afford you can't afford to run more than one, say, main deck Shatter in Vintage now. You can't <laughs> you can't play two Ancient Grudge. You remember when we used to play an Ancient Grudge in our Hercules or two Ancient yeah. Grudges in the main because you could yeah. count on playing against Time Vault two times and at like, a time. And like, and like three Trigon Predators. Yeah, you remember <laughs> you remember when you could run three Trigon Predators in the main? You can't like you can't yeah. dilute your deck anymore with with shatters um, because they're so unbelievably dead against all the aggro the gush aggro decks and against oath basically. Now, granted, there's some oath lists with time vault. Don't 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 overreact. But the point is yeah. is that I think I think vintage is struggling with an issue of narrowness and and linearity now that greater than it ever has before greater than i mean you have to go all the way back to the the goblins versus keeper days to find this kind of linearity i find the term linearity in the magic context incredibly ambiguous and indeterminate fair enough because people mean a lot of different things by it yeah i think the most obvious meaning is is a strategy that it it doesn't have a lot of junctures that look different from game to game like dredge but i think even the the point i'm making is the decks that we're looking at in dredge have so many strategic options in different tactics. Yeah. To, to call that linear really, I think, obfuscates well, more than... Well, Dredge might be stressing the definition by with trends in the last few months, I would agree. But yeah. the thing that got me to that observation was what you said about Delver and Mentor, and then it caused yeah. me to realize why I can't run more than one Hercules Recall in a main deck <laughs> anymore. It's because Delver and the thing, one of the values of the, the those gush-based aggro decks is how the virtual card advantage they get, and you can't well, stick an Ancient Grudge in your deck and expect to beat Delver anymore. I think, so I, I get your point, and your point is, I think what you're saying is that the strategies in the format are looking more and more singular, in a sense, that you can't really run, there aren't a lot of tactics, tactics that are versatile against multiple strategies. Yeah. You've got, so I think maybe linear, I think by what you mean, when you say linear, I, I see, I hear is narrow. Yeah, okay, that's fine. Oh. And as, as you hit on, the ver- there are not, there's a paucity of effective, versatile solutions. Yeah. Force of Will is probably the poster child for a versatile yeah. solution. Yeah. And it's yeah, actively got, like, not good against Delver. And of course, the same thing is true. Like, Mental Misstep is bad against Workshops. Yeah. Answer and any answer and something like that. Yep, exactly. So, so for every great card, like every Flusterstorm, there's a matchup where it's a total brick. Ten matchups where it's a brick. Yeah. I I want to I want to get to a point. I think you you hit on an important point, but I want to make another observation, which is uh, the I think people who are planning for this tournament are going to have a more difficult time than they probably had in a long time. <laughs> this vintage metagame is a real challenge to prepare for. Yep. And it's a yep. challenge for a bunch of reasons that we've already hit on and some we haven't. But to recap some of the ones we have, there is a tremendous lack of data and a lack of reporting of data. 
Um, the data we have, the sample sizes are small, and the samples we have are, are poor samples in a lot of cases. <laughs> um, so this is a really difficult challenge. And then there's been a, so much metagame change because just a couple months ago, we had a major restriction. Mm -hmm. And then before that, we were in a period in which it was defined by the card that was restricted. And then in, in the metagame before that is basically irrelevant mm -hmm. because it's a pre-dig metagame to a large extent. Um, and so what's the place we're in right now, this is what I want to get at. The way in which we understand vintage at this moment, pre-vintage champs, is going to be very different post-champs. <laughs> the vintage championship this year, and it sometimes has this effect, will consolidate and redefine the vintage metagame to a larger extent than it normally does. Mm -hmm. So we're going to walk out of the vintage championship with a wildly different understanding than I think people have right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's, that's the first thing I want to say. And, that, and I also want to say that the metagame is so hard to pin, to put sort of, you know, to define in a very particular set of ways that I think that there are so many possibilities that's actually a little bit overwhelming. So let me just make a couple examples. One, I'll make two examples beyond the fact that I think Dredge is on a huge, is about to have a huge surge. One example is you just talked about the lack of time vault decks, right, mm -hmm. Kevin? But just the second to last um, most recent 4-0 was Grixis Control. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if there's an opening for Time Vault decks for the first time in, God, in a year and a half, two years. Yeah. I wonder if there's really a space for those strategies um, in a way that there really hasn't been. I'm not saying there are. I'm saying it's possible because that deck was preyed on by more than anything else. These Delver decks that just basically disappeared to a large extent. Mm -hmm. Second point, Oath, right? I mean, Oath of Druids won Vintage Championship last year. Looks like it's, you know, in your sample size, it's still like 10% of the top eights. Mine, it's like <laughs> 1%. It's 1 out of 31. Yeah. Um, but that's a strategy that I think as we saw that the two Oath decks that top forward were very streamlined and they both hinged on preordain, right? Mm -hmm. At least the winner had four preordain. Yep. And so I... I think that um, what I'm trying to say is this is a very difficult metagame, not just to prepare for, but to predict. That's the key point I'm trying to get. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think there's a lot of possibilities for things to happen. So if you told me that Grixis Control won the tournament, I would not be surprised. Now, it seems very improbable, but there's a rationale behind that sort of thing, right? Sure. Grixis Control has been down for years. It's one of the naturally most powerful strategies in the format. It makes sense that it's been ignored. It's at its lowest ebb, that it would surge and, and appear, right? So you can, you can make a case for for any of these things that's what i'm trying to say you can make a case for shops you can make a case for dredge you can make a case for bug you can make a case for mentor delver oath landstill the answer any of these strategies could do really well and i don't know how it's going to shake out yeah, i agree with you about grixis and the, the observation about time vault was one of the things i was deriving from what i've observed about the narrowness and that is one of the ways one of the things that used to keep workshops down, quote unquote, to a degree, and used to keep Dredge from winning tournaments to a degree, <laughs> was the fact that the blue decks could just outbroken you Top. about 20 to 25% of the time. Yeah. I think to sum up this point, one card that exemplifies what we're talking about is the card Nile Spellbomb. Nile Spellbomb, aside from its application in Bomberman, which is totally legitimate and part of the combo and also just instantly good. But Nile Spellbomb is the sort of card that used to show up in basically, as a one of in basically every Grixis control deck, right? For a while. Mm -hmm. And how is that card main deck playable? Well, it was decent at disrupting other strategies, but against Dredge, it was a nice little time walk and a half. 
Right. But the reason that Niall Spellbomb is actually playable was because those Grixis decks could expect to manufacture a game-winning scenario in the time that the Tormod's Crypt Effect allotted them. You can't do that in Delver or Mentor within a reason. Land still exactly. I mean, Niall Spellbomb really kind of only worked in that deck where you had access to ending the game a turn and a half or two turns later. And that's the kind of deck that has kind of disappeared from the metagame. Now, we've already mentioned Bomberman. Bomberman is an exception to that. It's an example of that kind of deck. But completely not present online for logistical reasons. And in paper, it's still only a nominal representation. That's one of the reasons why Bomberman's so good, is it's kind of a resilient form of that old combo control deck, but not many players play it for one reason or another. Well, I think your point is is interesting, but one of the counterpoints to it is that, you know, Nils Bomberman was used as a hedge against Reg, mm-hmm. And boot, but but something that you would also need to rely on post board. But these dread strategies with transformative sideboards rather than these anti hate sideboards really make that strategy less useful. Oh well, you're completely correct. I mean, if that trend was still happening right now, the Nile Spellbomb would be the weakest it's ever been. Really, ironically, it would only be good in game one mostly, <laughs> which is funny, which would reinforce its presence in the main. But anyway, we're splitting hairs now. Kevin, I, I should also point out, though, that according to MTG Goldfish, which looks at the the, um, the top eight percentages, including the three ones as well as the four O's, it has workshops as uh, over the same period, roughly, um, as 30 percent of the top of the those decks. So the conversion rate, if you if you want to put it that way, it's not quite the same thing. <laughs> it's, it's the number of the ratio of workshops in the metagame from three improves as it goes to four O. <laughs> Yeah, which is impressive. And, um, and the, the next most popular archetype, according to MTG Goldfish, which has some wonky, odd classification taxonomies, is Grixis Therapy, or Grixis uh, Pyromancer, mm-hmm. at, at 12% of the metagame, followed by Bug at 10%, Esper Mentor at 6%, uh, the, the Answer at 5%, and then uh, Jeskai Mentor at 5%, and then everything else is under 4%, including Landstill, Pyromancer, and, and Reg. Um, so if you but, combine those two mentors jeskai and esper you get a pretty good representation don't you uh you get about 10 percent. yeah interesting which is still less yeah anyway i i mentioned that because they, one of the biggest discrepancies still is workshops mm-hmm. workshops are either 30 to 51 percent on the online <laughs> and 20 percent um on paper that that discrepancy is too big to hold interesting so, which is you know, what, what what you know you say you are going to make a point that you uh that you felt explained that to some degree i don't think you ever got a chance to do that well i think that I don't want to insult online players. I know that there are several of them that are quite, quite good. I think there might be still some immaturity in the players online or players that just started playing vintage when it was comprehensively available online. And I think part of that, what that brings with it is a lack of historical precedence and understanding for how to address workshops. There are lines of play, there's muscle memory that's built in for you and I and hundreds of other vintage veterans about what you can do against workshops, what will work, what's beyond the pale, you know, what strategy, what lines just won't pay off, what opening hands you can keep. I can't shake the notion that there's probably some immaturity in the online metagame that workshops punishes. And you have anything to back that up? Just an intuition. It's just intuition. It's, I mean, it, 
part of its intuition, part of its looking at decks in dailies. I mean, I I do study dailies and look at the decks that go three and one. And but it, it, again, I don't mean to paint the whole. <laughs> I don't mean to paint the whole online metagame as naive. That's why I'm I'm reticent to make this point. I just feel like there are there are probably some players who don't have the history, the muscle memory built in about how to defeat workshops. There are probably some players who have copied online deck lists and maybe sideboard incorrectly. And and all it takes is for there to be one or two of those players in a daily event that has eight to 12 players. And then the workshop deck just bubbles to the top consistently or more consistently. So I, there's no way to prove that. And, yeah. and I know there, again, I know there are plenty of great competent players online. There are players who have succeeded in the paper world that started online. That's not my point. My point is simply that I think that there there might be some maturity to catch up with. Well, let me let me propose a counter an alternative hypothesis for our, our listeners to consider, mm-hmm. which is that maybe uh, maybe the workshop uh, players online is greater than that in the on, in the the other metagame. Certainly, Montolio gives us some evidence to support that thesis. Well, you know, your if your point is correct, then it would undermine mine, but. I I think you're I would really like to see the online data with Montolio specifically normalized out <laughs> because <laughs> he for one person to represent that disproportionate amount of 4-0 finishes would be unprecedented really there's I don't think you can make that an equivalence in the paper world so it's a little bit unprecedented Another hypothesis might just be that, um, and maybe it's a confluence of all these things. Yeah, I, or or it could just be that um, workshops is more a larger portion of the online field, and therefore shows up in greater quantities in top top. Um, what are the most affordable and, decks online? I don't know. I just wonder, or maybe it's maybe it's let's put it another way. Maybe workshops online, the, the the expense band for the cost of decks is narrower, such that players can more easily choose a, afford a deck across the metagame to play. Now I know wastelands were very expensive, so maybe that's not a real factor. I have to I have to imagine that the difference in economies influences deck selection, but it might not be big enough to really account for the dramatic thirty to fifty percent difference with paper. But it could account for the fact that why people don't play workshops in real life. The workshops are enormously expensive in real life and only increasingly so. So it could be that from some sort of theorized ideal vintage metagame, mm-hmm. workshops are underrepresented in paper magic. Wow. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. If that's the case, and you know, <laughs> taking taking that to a different angle, if you, which which they did, when you introduce the whole format to a, a a group of players and say, all right, I mean, obviously we started with classic. There's an issue there, so this is an imperfect analogy. But when you take and introduce vintage and say, okay, these cards are now playable. Now you can play vintage. Have at you. It could be that workshops is just more attractive to a player base who's entering the format and maybe not i don't mean they're new players necessarily but just hey this whole card pool is available to me where should i enter and maybe workshops is more attractive as an entry point than it is in paper magic for a handful of reasons that that point doesn't sound as persuasive to me, but <laughs> but we've offered a lot of theories for people to consider and it could be these aren't necessarily at least in some cases mutually exclusive possibilities but, I mean, um, if Montolio was a diehard Grixis control player, what would the online metagame look like? And if he had similar success... You know, like I said, I don't want to overstate it. 
Think about. I it, think Montoya was probably. I don't. I didn't mark it, but probably le- less than a third of the workshop top four O's. That's a pretty bold statement to be someone even being compared to a third of the. <laughs> think about that. Think you take the third of the workshop matchups. So tw- ten out of the thirty. What, what was the? No, well, no, no, no. It was. It was, it was uh, sixteen of sixteen 31. of thirty. So you take five out of the sixteen. Twelve. Pick twelve out. You're sorry. Uh, five you out. Take You're five right. out of the sixteen, lowering it to. 11 you put those five into crixus pyromancer maybe and now you've got 12 versus eight i mean that's a <laughs> that's a pretty big deal anyway uh, now i'm just yeah so. i think the key i think the key thing that's important for our viewers is to sort of assess what which of those possibilities they think is most true mm-hmm. because it will affect what they can expect at the vintage kingdom. yeah that is if they believe that you know for example if you think that the the magic online metagame more represents what you expect at vintage championship than the paper data then you should prepare you should should, don't even show up if you don't have a game against shops. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's worth but, noting too that the number of people that represent the performances you calculated and observed in Magic Online is actually relatively small. Not just Montolio, but there are a handful of other players that represent several of those 4-0 finishes. Right. And so you, out of 30 results, you might be talking about 15 people. Well, within reason. <laughs> That's right. You know, I didn't even, my last point though was I think maybe understated. If not only do you have to prepare for shops, but you could even viably build a workshop hate deck. Mm-hmm. And if, if you thought that the vintage metagame looked like the Magic Online one, mm-hmm. and and if you was constructed well enough and had at least decent enough plans, you might have a chance. That's right. If you've got a deck that has a, a, an inherent advantage against shops and any kind of a powerful A game just to, to overpower other decks normally, like if you've got a powerful game plan against Delver and you happen to be set up to defeat shops main deck then in eight rounds of Swiss at the Vintage Champs, you might just by default have bought yourself four to six wins. <laughs> it's a very realistic possibility. Oh, that's funny. So let's talk, let's translate this into predictions then. So there is, it's pretty clear from past evidence too that numerically speaking, the workshops are going to be closer to the representation that we've observed in paper than they will online. It's not going to be the 30 to 50% representation of four O's of, of online you're going to, yeah. you're going to see 20 to 25 percent probably of the room walk in with workshops and as you have described and i agree the top eight will there's a very reasonable chance that workshops will have a greater representation in this year's top eight because of their upswing so there could be two to four shops in the top eight this year <sighs> after that though it gets really really murky the the broad diversity of oaths performance online and in paper is a is a big question mark the breakdown of the gush aggro decks the decks that they're calling keeper in on tcdex.net take kind of a broad either jeskai or grixis kind of bent so there's lots of control decks to lots of different control variants to consider well let me just say in terms of my prediction i'm, I'm going to predict the metagame first mm-hmm. um and then we can talk about top eights i think that everything is going to be represented so oh, yeah. it, you know, it's just a matter of there will be a lot of things in the five to ten percent range <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Actually, I, I don't. I don't agree with that. I think there's going to be a lot of things in the under two percent. Well, yeah, but those aren't. I mean, that goes without I saying. I don't think. I think that the vintage metagame tends not to cluster at the five to ten percent. I think you tend to get like these things that are, you know, you tend to get these things that are like, like one thing is like twenty percent, one thing is like twelve percent, and the rest are like five percent. I less, I don't. You know, yeah, I don't agree. That's. I don't think that's how the modern metagame is going to work. I think you've got one thing at 20 to 25%. 
Yeah, shops. You've got, and the next most popular deck is is going to be ten percent at best. I think everything I, else is going to be clustered in the five to ten percent range. Now it depends on how you group them, right? So I might be differentiating yeah. Delver from Mentor. Well, I'm just going to combine all Gush decks. Well, okay. So if you group those together, then yeah, they're going to be above ten percent. That's fine. I just, yeah, I, I just don't want to suggest to our listeners that you prepare for Delver and Mentor in the same way. <laughs> so. It's yeah. very real impact to deck construction. The fact that those two decks are are kind of split down the middle, probably they're probably both going to be about five to ten percent in total, around fifteen. Yeah. Um, and I think I think you put it. Oath is going to be on the is on the decline. It was just about ten percent in my analysis, and it's performing very poorly online. Your analysis again; those were top eight data, not, that was, not metagame. That's right. It was. It I was think top the eight most, I think the most important place to look for metagame breakdown is that we have the, all the deck lists from the NYSE open. Right. And so I think that will probably be the strongest predictor in terms of looking at the total metagame. So just just to recap, according to Nick Detweiler, the organizer of the NYSE open, he had out of 150 players, 22 workshop decks, six dredge, eight mana drains. Sorry, a lot of mana drains. <laughs> it was a lot of mana drains, yeah. Do the math here. Do some math. As we observed in our... Yeah, sorry, you had 15 Oath decks, and then there were nine out of 150 of what you call like Planeswalker Control. Mm-hmm. Then there were five of that answer deck. And then there was eight blue-white control decks that were non-land still. And then on top of that, there was like 10, 11 blue-white control decks that were land still and a bunch of land still. Mm-hmm. So I don't think, you know, and then a small number of rituals. I think that that probably shakes out about right. I mean, a bunch of, a bunch of uh, there were about 22 or so gush decks. Yeah. Maybe, maybe more. So if you do broad groupings, you're looking at 30 to 35% blue-based control. Yes. What, I think that's what you might call mana drain decks, although not ever, all of them have mana drains. Right. And then 20 to 25% workshops and about 10 to 15, probably closer to 15% gush aggro. Yeah. And you're still going to be less than 10% dredge. There's still only going to be probably 6 or 7% dredge in the room, but you have to be prepared for it. You have to watch out for it. Yeah, I think the dredge is going to be a lot more because of the budget factor. Well, we don't have numbers on what it did last year from a metagame representation standpoint, but my anecdotal evidence from the last two years of Eternal Weekend suggests that that really doesn't manifest very much. I mean, if you've got 10 players in the room that that could play any deck and they chose Dredge, I would imagine there's only going to be another five players, <laughs> half, as, half again as many, that do it for budget reasons because it's the deck they can afford to play. Now, if that takes it from 7 to 12% or something, that's, that my math is wrong. If that takes it from 7 to 10%, then that's... That's yeah. possible. Yeah, I think there's going to be more dredge than there was at the NYSE Open. There were only six, and it won the tournament. Six I out think... of 150. Yeah, I would I would agree. I mean, I think there's going to be nearly 10% dredge. Oh, that's high. I there was four percent at the NYSE. I think there's going to be probably like seven and a half percent. Okay, we're in the same ballpark then. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think workshops are going to be by far the biggest between 20 and 25 percent. But if you group blue control decks together, you're going to get like like you said 30, 35 yeah. percent. And I it depends with whether you put gush decks with those i think gush decks are going to be in the you know 12 and a half percent 15 percent range and then oath decks i think are going to be down i'm going to say six and a half percent so there you go yeah uh, this speaks to when uh, i think a lot of our audience is already aware of this but when you go into a vintage event especially one that we can reliably expect to be eight rounds 
you're going to probably face blue decks almost almost half the time. Out of eight rounds, you're going to be playing a blue deck probably three to five times. Within reason, I mean, variance outside. You have to have a plan for your deck in a blue matchup. But the simple truth is, is that because a lot of the blue because tinker is the lowest it's been in years you can bring a fair deck to the table and expect to play well and have good plan against the blue deck and not worry so much about getting vintaged out so That's so you you have the so what is what does that mean in terms what of what i'm saying is is that in the past you used to have to load your deck up with several counter spells and you had to be ready for the tinker the yogmoth's will you had to be ready for them to just go off if you've got a plan for how to beat Dak Faden and Jace the Mind Sculptor, I think you're good against blue. I mean, with some help out of the sideboard, maybe. That, yeah. I think that's one of the big differences about all the blue decks you're going to face. <laughs> now, Gush Aggro is a different animal. Gush Aggro is going to out-card quality you, and so you've got to have a plan for that also. But it just used to be that if you sat down across from Grixis Control, you had to watch out for Island Mana Crypt Tinker. That had to be one of the things you were expecting to see in Vintage. That's much less so now. The trend lines for blue decks are terrible right now, though. Yeah. I mean, the, just the NYSE, the t- none of the top three were blue. The second and third place deck were workshops, and the fourth the fourth place deck was blue by accident because it was bugged. <laughs> and the blue decks that did make top eight, there were two Landstill yeah. and a Bomberman. The fifth, yeah, the, fifth, the top blue deck, if you want to call it blue, was the fifth place deck, which was um, the answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you know, which is not uh, going to outbroken you. So that that supports my point. My point is that the the landscape of the blue decks you're going to face, even though there will be a lot of them, yeah. don't need to prepare the way you did in years past. I guess it comes down to you don't have to have main deck pyroblast. <laughs> I wonder if this is going to look like the 2000 and what was it, the year Mark Lenegra one, where there was four workshop decks in the top eight, two dredge decks in him, and he won. I wonder if it's going to look like that, where there's going to be like someone who cracked the code in terms of beating the work of non-blue decks and just wins the tournament. Hmm. What was the other deck in the top eight? Do you remember that? There year? was Bomberman. It was Bomberman. Esper yeah. Bomberman, yeah. I wonder if it's going to be like that, honestly. I think that if you played that top eight out 10 times, I think that Mark doesn't win more than half the time in that top eight. <laughs> I think. With the same seating? Yeah. I think that the configuration you mentioned is possible. I mean, up as many as four workshop decks in the top eight this year two Dredge, sure. Grixis, yeah. Bomberman. Could be Landstill. Yeah, I, mean, I, mean, I think that's, that's reasonable. Yeah, I wouldn't be very surprised about that top eight. Where it goes from there, though, I the th- the thing is, is that workshops are more prepared than ever for everything right now. Now, Mark Lanegar didn't have the benefit of Dak Faden, so you might say, well, that's definitely in favor of Grixis, except that the workshop decks have evolved such that they know how to handle Dak Faden by default. There isn't a good workshop player out there who can't tell you what their plan is if your opponent's holding Dak Faden this game, right? Yep. That is, that's public enemy number one for workshops when your opponent plays Pluted Delta Go. So I don't know. I, I With that starting configuration, even though I think you're right that there is an opening for Grixis in the metagame as a whole, 
I, I don't know. I, I, I have to pick workshops or dredge to win that top eight. You know. Yeah, yeah. I'm, more I'm often not than saying not. that I necessarily think that the, the blue deck will win that mm-hmm. top eight, but I wouldn't be surprised if it looks something like that. I, I actually don't think it's going to be like that. I think the top eight will, will have at least one dredge and at least one workshop. Mm-hmm. I think likely two dredge and likely three workshops. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like it's going to be a four workshop top eight, but I could be wrong. Um, and I think I think it's going to be. You know, I think there's um, so that's five non-blue decks and three blue decks. That's why I think the top eight's going to be. I think that's reasonable. I think that's totally fair. There's and I don't think there's going to be any oath. I'm going to go on a limb and say that zero. Yeah, I think oath. There are a number of factors conspiring against it. Also, the fact that containment priest exists now, and it's not a cure-all for the the way oath works, of course, but it's just more fuel for the fire against oath. The thing about uh, any large vintage tournament, and this is the largest vintage tournament um, in the States at least, is for every archetype, within reason, for every archetype, its best pilot will probably be there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and in some cases, popular archetypes like workshops, only about 20 or 30 of its best pilots will be there. And so, it, I, I don't know, I, I, have, I guess my point is any given Sunday. <laughs> right. My point about we've talked about last year's top eight and the year before that i just think that there are some top eights where one player or deck is supremely well positioned like i think joel Lim, once he made top eight was just destined to win that event (laughs) but there are others i i don't want to discredit mark lenigra but the deck he played in the matchups he's played that's razor's edge stuff and i also think that last year I, i don't want to insult anybody i just think that Oath versus Delver, for example, that's some Razor's Edge stuff. Oh yeah, for sure. And so that's that's all my point is that I agree with your conclusion about so, the the makeup of the top eight. But man, who wins the event? I, I wouldn't be surprised in that top eight if we had a repeat of Mark Lenigra's top eight if Bomberman took it home this year, for example. I mean, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> just, it could. So so so, what's your prediction then for your top eight? What do you think the top eight? I think the top eight is going to be at least two workshops, at least one dredge. I think there's going to be... Those are my floors, too. Yeah, that, that's the floor. I also think there's a floor of at least one non-Grixis blue-based control. Non-Gush. Non-Gush. Non, 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 I don't call it... Yeah, not Gush at all. I'm talking about either Bomberman or Landstill. The, the answer is in that population, too, but I think I just think that Landstill... The, the thing is, is the metagame, while it's hard to predict what's going to happen, the metagame is very well understood in terms of what you're going to face. There's, yeah. It's not like when someone plays a workshop across from you, they could be playing anything, you know. There's it's a very narrow band of what you can expect. The same goes for for your oath and your dread. Well, dredge is an interesting topic, but same goes for your delver and your mentor. The so I think skilled landstill deck designers are rewarded in environments like that, which is what, what part of the reason I think there were two of them in the top eight at the NYSE, and I think that's going to repeat again. So I think there's going to be a landstill in the top eight. Interesting. But what makes up the rest is anyone's guess. I don't think there's going to be anything truly surprising or rogue in there. I think it's just going to be more of that stuff. I think your point of three workshops, two dredge is certainly possible. A dredge is in such small numbers, though, that numerically speaking, the odds of a second one making it, I think, are a little down. I would put more likely that there's going to be three dredge, uh, sorry, three shops, one dredge, two blue-based control, like uh, your Bomberman, Landstills, and then 
the last two slots literally anything. <laughs> not a, not an unknown deck, I mean. I just mean... Do you think a gush deck is going to make top eight? I think it could. I think one gush deck could make top eight. One thing we should just point out is I don't expect there to be a doomsday deck in the top eight. <laughs> <laughs> no, nor do I expect there to be a Belcher deck in the top eight. Sorry. ESL aside. Yeah. Oh, boy. But I, think, undoing. but I think that okay. uh, 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 there could be maybe like a Stoneblade style control also could make the cut. Yeah, there's, yeah. There's been, I mean, there could very well be an oath top eight. I don't want to completely discount it. Uh, I, uh, I kind but, of, I am willing to discount it. I think that oath isn't going to make the cut this year at all. I think I kind of too much momentum against deck. it. I kind of wonder if a bug deck will make top eight though. Mm-hmm. It's time for bug to come back. You know, I think that well, I think that the NYSE bug deck was very well metagamed for fighting the gush based for the gush based aggro decks, <clears throat> but I think they're, those are going to be so underrepresented that. That bugs natural prey won't it won't face it as much. You know what I mean? I'm not sure if I agree with that, but I hear you. Well, how many how many gush based aggro decks do you? Think I don't. Face no, I mean I disagree with the premise. I disagree with the premise that bug preys on the gush decks. That's okay. Oh, I think that the the bolt decks are really good against bugs. Uh, I was thinking. It, sorry, I was thinking specifically about mentor, not about delver. Obviously, delver has the advantage over gush. I was thinking about mentor. I think mentor is going to be down. I think a lot of yeah. I think what you observed about mentor earlier on in the show is shared by a lot of people. When mentor made a big splash, it's really exciting. Best thing it does is win smaller local events and then put some copies in a stone blade or landstill style show. Yeah. I still also can't shake the feeling, though, that I've been right about Mentor all this time, and it's still just the nuts, <laughs> and it just hasn't proven it in the big events, and maybe it finally will at Vintage Champs. <laughs> but but I have a feeling if, if Mentor really doesn't top eight Vintage Champs, it's done. Well, as someone who plays a lot of Mentor, I can tell you that almost no amount of design makes it good enough against everything. It You can, yeah. over, you can design the deck to overpower just about any one opponent, but it's not broadly good against the field. I mean... It has real issues with workshops, and a deck that starts with real issues with workshops is, is I don't think it's well-positioned. So let's wrap up this, this podcast by asking the most important question, mm-hmm. which, is how, which is how many people are going to show up. Yeah. Which is not, not the most important question. <laughs> well, the tournament has been on the rise in terms of attendance. It was just over 300 two years ago, 300 and a half last year. I don't think it's going to continue any kind of linear growth along those lines. I think it'll be sub 400, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was pretty high 300s, like 380 this year. I think you're exactly right. I think that's right. I think the VSL has given a surge to vintage, so I don't want to discount that. But that surge started last year. It's, hard, it's really hard to. Well, the VSL it was in the middle of the VSL. We've got a lot more. There's 341 vintage players last year, mm-hmm. so I think I think 380 is probably right. But I wouldn't be shocked if we broke 400, and that would be awesome. That would be totally awesome. And no, I wouldn't be terribly shocked either. It has a little bit to do with how well attended Legacy Champs is, also. Because you got to believe that five to ten percent, okay, ten percent's a lot. Yeah, maybe five to ten percent of the people in the room at Vintage Champs are legacy players who just are there for the fun, borrowed cards, what have you. And uh, so, if uh, a large turnout for one bolsters the other, yeah, I'm I'm thinking 380 is a pretty solid estimate this year. Anything more than that will be total gravy. <laughs> well, it was great great to be here with you, Kevin, and I'm very much looking forward to this event. I think it's going to be very exciting, very fun, very exciting. To all of our listeners, we expect to see many of you at the Eternal Weekend, so come up and say hi to one or both of us. 
For those of you that we know, we, we look forward to seeing you. For those of you that we haven't met before, we look forward to meeting you. I met a ton of people in each of the last couple of years of Eternal Weekend. That's part of the fun of it. And so come up and say hi. Let us know what you think about the attendance. What do you think the attendance number is going to be? And also, what do you think the top eight is really going to look like this year? If you feel like calling your, your projected winner, either archetype or player out on Twitter or email or some such, then we welcome it. We'll definitely acknowledge anyone who calls it accurately beforehand. <laughs> Thank you for listening to episode 46 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com as always and until next time we wish you many insane plays